Oh, the shame that will get. If you've let all the fans down. Can we not knock this? It's a fact. I love playing mind games. I'm talking about facts. I always said if I was Aladicci, I would probably say I was more of a tactical genius. Yeah, I answer questions on anything. Uh, religious, politics, uh, health, you know, sexual uh, problems. Look at his face! Just look at his face! None of you except for those two have done anything to justify the money that you earn. None of you! Disgrace! And I suggest you shut up and show more football. Yes, it is Friday night. It is Team 33. This is the Football Happy Hour here in Off The Ball and a call here with you for the next hour or so. Coming up later on the show, I'll be chatting to Labour TD Aon Rayron about his walking football tour of Dublin. That's coming up in the second half of the show. Some really interesting stuff coming from the north side of Dublin. And if you're a Bose fan, if you're a Shells fan, if you're a Dublin football fan, a League of Ireland fan, that is definitely one that you want to stick around for. But it is time to get into the week of football. So the big news of the week is that Man City are once again Premier League champions. Pep Guardiola does it once again. Imagine back in the period where he managed Barcelona, being one of those people who questioned whether Pep Guardiola could come and do what he has done in the Premier League. He has been phenomenal since he got here. Now, granted, he has been helped with a pretty bottomless budget when you think about it, but again, he's done it in style. He's done it with the same class that he did with Barcelona, and arguably this is his most impressive performance as a manager his Man City stint in general not not this year in particular but in general this Man City stint where he has developed the club over a number of years developed the squad and even though they haven't had the same set people because I mean if you're thinking about his Barcelona tenure you're thinking Messi, Xavi, Iniesta these are the players that he had he had them for the majority of his Barcelona career then he moves to Bayern Munich and he still has that core of players but at City he has changed centre-backs multiple times. He's changed full-backs multiple times. Aguero has been a fairly loyal person up front for him. Raheem Sterling has developed massively under him. But you have the likes of Mares coming in, Bernardo Silva, Phil Foden coming in this year. And he's just advancing Man City as a club. And it's been, it's been really interesting to watch Pep Guardiola develop his tactical knowledge over the last couple of years and develop it for the English game. If you think about the way that Man City played this year before Ruben Diaz came in, obviously. Man City have changed it up dramatically this year. They're not as helter-skelter as they were in previous years. They've been very measured, very possession-based once again. At times, Man City have actually been playing one route one football. But for the majority of the the season, especially since Ruben Diaz came in, Man City have been playing with no striker and it has been a really interesting thing to see develop because we don't see that all too often. I mean, we've seen it with Spain in the Euros, but we haven't really seen it too often with a successful, at least a successful team, and especially at the Premier League, where in England it's very much seen as you need a striker, you need that focal point up front, you need someone to be able to hold up the ball or get into the box and get you goals. But Man City have managed to win the league without playing an out-and-out striker, which is really interesting. And Pat Nevin had a really good point on the football show on Monday night about this, and some really interesting history about it, because... He essentially, I'm too young to to remember this, I don't know if there's anybody that's listening that is old enough to remember the Ajax team under Johan Cruyff. They played basically with no striker and he explained this and the way that they developed that and how Barcelona tinkered with it but not to the extent in which they were literally playing no striker and Pep Guardiola has managed to do something twice now that has really impressed me with this Man City side and that's bring something from the past, from the 80s, that has been seen to be maybe a tactic that has gone out of style and he's reinvented it a little bit for modern day football. And he did that earlier on the season with the Christmas tree formation that he was playing for a while with Joao Cancelo. That's one from the early 80s, if I'm not mistaken, that went out of fashion but he brought it back in modern day football and managed to develop it a little bit more. And he's done that again with the no striker up front. I thought it was really interesting. Man City are a fantastic side to watch. Whatever team you support, 
they're just phenomenally dominant is the word I would use. Even Liverpool, who were so dominant last season, you just got the feeling that that was their season. That was the season that they were going to do it. Whereas this Man City side, you always feel that, you know, they might not win it every single year, but they'll come back and they'll win it. And I think that's the difference between Pep Guardiola's Man City and Jurgen Klopp's Liverpool so far. But Man City did win the league with thanks to Manchester United. Disgraceful, disgraceful Manchester United who started the Leicester game with their under-15s. Or at least that's what some people like to make out as if Manchester United should be docked points for playing their younger side, their weakened side, their B team, as some people have described it. I mean, Manchester United started the game with David De Gea Nets. They started the game with Eric Bailly, a centre-back. They started with Juan Mata, who has won the Premier League before. They've started with worse teams than that over the last couple of years. Yet, some people have been talking as if it was just this you know disgraceful unpatriotic unfair to the rest of the competition team whereas I mean nine times out of ten how many times is that United team going to beat most of the Premier League clubs in the Premier League right now like genuinely how many times if you if you break down that that team David De Gea starting goals Brandon Williams has been starting for Manchester United not so much of late, but he has he's played in the Champions League for Manchester United. Eric Bailly, again, you're arguing, could he come in and be a direct replacement for Victor Lindelof? Absolutely could. Axel Twanzebe, yes, maybe he's not at the level you want him to be, but again, he's a young player who's developing. And Alex Tellas, who was supposed to come in and be United's first choice left back. Moving up into the team, Donny van de Beek started in centre midfield. Again, you're looking at him and he's a direct replacement. He may not have hit the heights that he wanted to with the United team so far, but he is a direct replacement for centre midfield. Then Juan Mata is all starting again. Like I said, he was a Premier League champion and he was a, a regular starter for Man United at one point in time. Then you move forward again. Mason Greenwood, who is the most exciting prospect outside of Phil Foden, in the Premier League right now. Ahmed Diallo, who we haven't seen enough of so far. But again, he has been you know, pegged as this absolute wonder kid who's going to be a fantastic player in the future. Nemanja Matic, who played alongside Donny van de Beek. Again, a Premier League champion. Coming in, regular starter for United at, at times. And then the one debutant was Alanga coming in at left wing. And I mean, it's not as if United got beat 5-1 here. They got beaten 2-1 and they were level at one point in time. They were only trailing the game for five minutes after 19-year-old Luke Thomas scored for Leicester. So it's not as if United completely lost a run of themselves and threw this match. But there was one commentator in particular that I'm talking about here and it is Trevor Sinclair. If you didn't hear him on Talks Word earlier in the week, here's what Trevor Sinclair had to say about United's lineup. If you look at Manchester City, they make seven or eight changes from game to game. It's a normal practice for them because they've got the squad to handle that. They've got the quality of squad to go in and play a game and win Premier League games. That's why they're Premier League champions. Probably because they've adapted best and they've got a squad that can deal with that and the quality within that squad is exceptional. I think when you look at Manchester United and what went on last night, for me, I think it spits in the face of uh, the Premier League and the top four uh, fight. It spits in the face I of do, the Premier League. I think League. it's disrespectful. I think they're not respecting the top four flight fight. And it, it's all come of, of a sequence of events which is self-inflicted by Manchester United. If you look at that event, there is things in place. There's protocols in place where you get fined. The football club gets fined. Mick McCarthy and Wolves were fined when they fielded a weaker team against Manchester United, ironically, a couple of years back or a few years back. This is normal when you, when you put a weak inside. But the reason they're putting a weak inside out is for their own doing because of the way that the football club's being run, trying to join the European Super League, the fans' demonstration risk, which was there. They didn't do anything about it. The game ended up getting called off against Liverpool. Now, if they would have won lost that game against Liverpool, do you think that side would have been the same side that played Leicester last night? Of course it wouldn't. No. Because Leicester would have been the biggest threat to try and catch Manchester United. I don't think that would have been the, the case. Now, the fact that they made 10 changes, which is very, very unlike Manchester United. If it's City, like I said earlier, it's normal. If it's Manchester United, these are a lot of players that have not really played or featured a lot for Manchester United this season. 
Yeah. But Obviously, still, the sporting integrity the sweat, of that top four race comes into question. So the issue with what he is saying there, right, is who are the Premier League to say whether a manager puts out his strongest team or not? Who <laughs> The governing bodies cannot decide whether or not they deem a team to be good enough to play in a game. For example, let's t- reel back to when Solskjaer was a player with United, when the class in 92, the famous class in 92, are breaking through to the team. A lot of people thought that Fergie was a bit crazy for that. But those players went on to have fantastic careers. And again, I, I do want to stress here, Leicester won this game 2-1. They didn't hammer United. And like really and truly... It's an absolute nonsense to believe that somebody should be telling a manager how he should be allowed to line up. And they got rid of the rule that they would be fine for this for a reason, because it was stupid. It was a stupid rule in the first place. It made no sense. And if a manager thinks that the under-19s could go out and get a result, then he is within his right to go out and play the under-19s if he feels that 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 team will get a result. And I just want to harp back to a result, a famous result that United got a couple of years ago, many, many years ago against Arsenal. 8-2. Here's the starting lineup for that Arsenal game. David Hay starting goals. Now, this is not the David Hay of now. This is the David Hay of 2011. So he's a young David Hay. Johnny Evans, Phil Jones playing centre-back. Patrice Evra, an old Patrice Evra playing left back, and Chris Smalling playing right back. Thomas Cleverley and Anderson make up the centre midfield with Nani on the right wing and Ashley Young as the left wing with Danny Welbeck and Wayne Rooney playing off front. Now, in Trevor Sinclair's logic, should United have been dock points for that 8 2 win against Arsenal because they're not playing their strongest lineup? Ferguson played the hand that he had. He won that game 8-2. Solskjaer played the hand that he has now. He lost the game 2-1. That is the only difference between what happened then and what happened now. So Trevor Sinclair is talking absolute garbage when he says that United should be dock points for playing the team. If, If anything, it's almost as if he has an agenda. Moving on to the battle of whose job is harder. And now this one... Is a bit funny. It's 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 a bit of a joke. Like it's not it's not a serious story. I don't think there was any beef in it. But we're gonna we're gonna play it up as if there was beef. So this started with Michael Owen, who tweeted about strikers versus midfielders. This is his tweet. People are genuinely giving as much credit to players' number of assists as they do to the number of goals nowadays. Literally one in ten goals are genuine assists. Yet someone who plays a five-yard ball to his mate who screams one into the top corner from 30 yards, gets as much credit. <laughs> I mean, he's been a bit dramatic there. How many how many goals do you genuinely see that are just like a five-yard pass and then the striker fires it into the top barrel? So, obviously, you know, he's he's putting his neck on the line there, Michael Owen is, and he got a bit of a bite from none other than Cesc Fabregas, former Arsenal player Cesc Fabregas, quote-tweeted it saying, I don't completely agree there, Michael. Making and creating can sometimes be twice as hard than those making the runs and scoring the goals. Don't don't underestimate the little time slash space we have in midfield to take the best decision for you guys and the imagination slash creativity we should have to find you. So again, now he's he's putting the weight off the assist maker, the midfielder ahead of the striker. So I mean, again. It's it's not as simple as, you know, the midfielder does a better job than the striker, but Rio Ferdinand responded to this saying, respectfully, without us in capital letters, us in capital letters defending and protecting your goal, you guys don't have the platform to perform and all your frilly atta- and do all your frilliest attacking stuff. We have the hardest j- job respectfully. I'm just waiting for the goalkeepers union to get together and see what their response is for this. I, I, I don't know what about you if you want to text us on 53106 or tweet us at Team33 which position do you think is actually harder I can only come at this from somebody who has actually played to a much lower level in uh, all of those positions and I can tell you that 
in this order, this is how difficult each position is. The wing-back position is quite difficult because you have to be good at defending and attacking. Centre-back's the easiest position on the pitch. It's uh, You see the full game, especially if you're a creative type, a ball-playing centre-back. Centre-back is the easiest place because you see the whole game unfolding and if you're playing against a bad team, you don't have much to do. Midfield, again, you need an engine to play midfield. You need to be a bit creative in midfield. Wing is a little bit different to playing centre midfield but I think you need the most game intelligence to play centre mid- midfield and then up front you do need to be smart you need to know how to make the runs you know how to, need to be good at reading where to be on the pitch at the right time i.e. in the box when the ball comes in but if I was to choose one that is the hardest or the best way I can say to explain this is probably if you play centre midfield I genuinely I usually think that a centre mid a good centre mid could slot in as a centre back or they could play up front they're adaptable they know how to play the game they know how to play multiple positions so I would have centre midfield as the hardest position to play in football now again I stress that I come at that from somebody who plays Saturday League football in the Leinster Senior League not the Premier League so it might be a little bit different in those positions one interesting argument though that actually comes up into this and something that I've been asked multiple times and I'd be interested to see what the listeners thought of this if you played in say Man City side you're playing at the level that you now play in you're you're only as good as you currently are at football if you're playing with Man City's team so they like to work the ball into the box usually get goals from the six yard box how many goals do you think you would score in the Premier League because I think it's zero. Some of my friends think they might reach double figures despite the fact that you know professional footballers don't reach double figures at times. I think you're not scoring a single goal against the Premier League defense if you're not playing you know proper professional football. I I just I can't see it. I can't see how firstly you would be able to keep up with the play, secondly you would have the stamina, thirdly I, I think we completely underestimate how good these players actually are. Moving on to Tottenham fans. This is an interesting story because obviously we had the controversy off the Super League a couple of weeks ago. Tottenham were surprisingly part of that big six move, the self-proclaimed big six move. And now, as an apology, obviously all the fans are getting apologies from their clubs. Tottenham have set up a panel, uh, an advisory to the board for fans to sit on so any decision that Spurs come to they have to talk to the fans in an advisory panel but Tottenham fans have seen this for what it was as sort of a you know the real board meeting happens and then the board meeting with the Spurs fans happen and they they're just kind of tick the box exercise and they have actually pushed for further power because they have uh, essentially, if you haven't seen the story, so Spurs announced the creation of a club advisory panel on Tuesday, comprising elected supporter representatives and a chair appointed annually to the board. And as a non-executive, that person would have full voting rights. But the Tottenham fans want more than that because they think that you know, again, it is just a, a sort of a tick the box exercise, and the trust has made their reservations clear they've come out and they said the dogged stance off the trust and the wider support base has forced the club to concede the principle that fans must be represented at board level and to adopt some of our specific suggestions but announcing this without consultation on detail is not a promising start and the measures set out in the club statement do not give the fan representatives any power at all it is vital that the club's advisory board has the support of the fans including the trust, if it is to be a credible vehicle for fan representation. We are very willing to meet the club to discuss the mechanics of a genuine supporter on the board level. So that is an interesting story, I think. It was very much Tottenham sort of saying, look, we're we're definitely with the fans here. We're definitely part of the, you know, you, you mean so much to us, even though we were willing to toss you out to the dogs a few weeks ago. I do want to finish with a worst take of the week, the worst take of the week, and it came with a man who you've been listening to for the last two hours or so, and apologies to Jack Gilroy here, but uh, this is 
this for me this this is the worst football take of the week and it came for, from our own Jared Gilroy and OTBAM but if Eric are going to actually give him all the money that he deserves then why not play a season for somebody else and if you're one of those top teams Coleman's performances at right back at right wing back as the third man in a, a three man defence would suggest that he could legitimately hold his own or play a role for almost any team in the Premier League hmm would Man United not be happy having him as the third man in a, in a, a trio of centre, central defenders, suddenly adding a little bit of pace to the slow coaches beside him, or as the right wing back, or as somebody to teach Arwan Basaka, this is how you're supposed to play, right? So Basaka plays 70% of the games, Coleman plays the other 30%, but suddenly there's strength and depth. And in the big European games, you're like, come on now, Seamus, come on. Now, I'm not going to lie to you, when I first saw that, I thought I had taken a red pill and transported back to 2013 and somehow, you know, I was still in secondary school and the sun was shining, the leave insert was over and there was rumours circulating that Seamus Coleman was going to sign for United and, you know, all would have been merry. Unfortunately, it was not. It was still, it was a grey Tuesday when I watched this and it was... It was sort of raining outside. COVID was still happening, and <laughs> Jerry Gilroy was suggesting that Seamus Coleman should sign for United, or United rather should sign Seamus Coleman. The biggest issue I have with this, the biggest issue is that he's thirty-two years old. I, I, I there is nothing in this world that I would love more than Seamus Coleman to sign for United, if it made any sense. But again, it's seven years, eight years, maybe too late for this to happen. He is a fantastic player, phenomenal player for Everton and all of Everton's best performances have come with Seamus Coleman at right back which is why I think it's mad that Carlo Ancelotti is still insisting of playing Awobi as a right wing back instead of playing Seamus Coleman at back back, uh, back four. It's just crazy stuff. I, I, I would have loved Seamus Coleman to sign for United. He would have been captain material if you imagine sort of a Roy Keane 2.0 effect not to the extent where he would have been the best player in the world at one point in time but the to the fact of the leadership that he would have brought to the team at a point in time in a position where United were weakest and United were badly needing that source of you know respect drive you know willingness to put the body on the line for anything in the club that's when United were lacking it very much so and Seamus Coleman would have been the absolute perfect person to fill that role but at 32 years old after breaking his leg I just don't see it happening somehow I don't see him getting that big 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 move but again he he made this decision himself to stay at Everton I've no doubt in my mind that teams would have wanted to sign Seamus Coleman in the past and Seamus Coleman just turned him down because he wants to be at Everton and Everton fans love him for that. He's an absolute Everton legend through and through. And, you know, I think we are going to be putting Seamus Coleman in the same category as the likes of John O'Shea, who we just vastly, vastly underestimated because Seamus Coleman is the only player we have right now that is playing in the top half of the Premier League, bar Matt Doherty, who's not playing regularly for Tottenham. So I think... Seamus Coleman, once he retires, you know, it's going to be a difficult place to fill. It's going to be difficult shoes to fill for Ireland and for Everton. So I think he's, he won't he won't quite move to to Everton, but he won't quite move to United from Everton, rather. But he has had a phenomenal uh, season and a phenomenal career at Everton, nonetheless. That is the football week here in Team 33. Again, as I said, if you want to get in touch, if you have any thoughts on any of the discussed topics you can text us on 53106 tweet us at team33 that's all spelled out in words back after the break we'll be talking to Labour TD Aon O'Reilly about his walking football tour of Dublin stay tuned Team 33 this is OTB Sports Radio now I'm delighted to be joined on the line by Labour TD for Dublin Bay North Aon O'Reilly and by actor Gary Cook as well because we're taking a walking football tour of Dublin tonight as the two of them have started this sort of walking tour off North Dublin, I would say, because it it starts in the Clonliffe Road and ends in Daly Mount Park. Aon and Gary, you're very welcome along. Thanks for joining me tonight. Hi, how are you? 
Hi, how are you? So tell us a little bit about this first. How did it come about? Why did you start doing this? And sort of what's what's the motive behind this? Why did you want to bring the history of football in Dublin to life? Um, I suppose if you go back to August, um, a lot of us were, were spending a lot of time at home going through sort of boxes in our attics and stuff. And I have a big interest in football. So I was going through a lot of my football program collections. And um, I know Gary and Gary, uh, the entertainment industry was was basically halted overnight because of the pandemic. So uh, his interest in football and my interest in football and our collective interest in, in history kind of uh, made us start thinking about what we could do practically you know and uh, we had an idea of doing a football walking tour uh, of Dublin um, from from Crow Park uh, to Daly Mount Park uh, just as a one-off uh, at the end of August to see if there'd be interest in it and uh, really to get people out of their houses because people aren't going to matches and they're, and they're really looking for something to do and we just we decided to do one in on August 22nd and we had such incredible interest in it and hundreds of people emailing me uh, and emailing us uh, was that it's it's still going and we've taken obviously a break since uh, since January and we're just back up running again now but the level of interest is absolutely astounding and it's all really about the conflict between effectively soccer and GA over the last hundred years or so and a huge amount of the history of that conflict or that tension between the two games uh, and the political context around it features heavily in that area of of the north inner city Connor road um uh, area and uh, and we enjoy it yeah and gary a lot of people would know you from apri match and from your comedic work as well but what what was it got you into this why did you say yes to aon when i asked you about it uh because you never say no to aon really i've realized <laughs> that <laughs> You might come across as a nice guy, but really, um, no. I, I just, for for the same reasons, I suppose, as, as Aon is saying, I was, you know, I'm interested in in, in football, uh, and I'm interested in sport generally. I'm also interested in history, and and I did a little bit of tour guiding as well, uh, actually, as a as a as a kind of part time job as well, in a place called the Little Museum in Dublin. Um, so I was, you know, the three things. Kind of led me to 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 think it was a good idea, and it it is a good idea, and it kind of, it kind of taps into a certain, you know, it it taps into a dare I say it, uh, uh, the civil war politics in a way in this country, and it's so much tied in with the uh, with with the war of independence, uh, the two sports and their histories, as you know. Mm. Uh, so the whole thing just interested me. Yeah, yeah well, you're speaking to a, a sport and history. Not so. I, the only reason I wanted to get you on was because I, I didn't want to pay for the tour. I just wanted to get it for free. So we'll we'll start with no, the tour. Gary is going to be one. Gary is going to be one of these guys who's going to contradict us. He said no, that wasn't eighteen sixty seven. It was eighteen sixty eight. How dare no, you? It, uh, hang it, up the We get letters. Way. We get letters. You know, we do. We get emails. <laughs> we get letters written in green ink saying hmm, you didn't mention such and such or such and such an event. Anyway, yeah, no, it's yeah. it's uh, uh, it's fascinating because in a way, Crow Park. And I used to represent that area politically. Um, the first time I ran for election was in the North Inner City, 2004. And Crow Park is almost like an alien spaceship in a soccer area. And, and that sort of tension or, or, or friction has always really fascinated me. So there's a huge number of Irish soccer internationals from that immediate area. Um, but there wouldn't really be the same number of, uh, of, of famed GA players. Um, and that sort of uh, official Ireland view of soccer in the early years of the state is something that we both uh, are fascinated by. The idea of these uh, of an Irish soccer team trying to bring honours to the country all over the world, but yet despised by a huge number of people in Ireland at the same time, um, is something that it might be very unusual to younger people, but it's something that probably we would be more uh, aware of um, you know, as we were growing up. Mm. Um, yeah, we did a piece. Uh, it was a sort of a series at the start of the lockdown, the first lockdown with Paul Rouse, the historian mm. from UCD, mm. and he discussed the diff the the different variations and almost the complexity of this situation because the GAA has, in some ways, whitewashed all of the good that soccer has done in Dublin and how how much it actually was loved. So can we, can we start with the Clonmel Road and around that area because I think yeah. that's where the heart of football. I play football for Drumcondra, so I, I train in O'Connell School, which to me is an amazing place to train because you have Crow Park in the background, but it is soccer heartland of Dublin. Yeah, well, we started at the junction there, Clonliffe Road and, and the Ballybuck Road, and we just kind of give an indication of all the soccer internationals who are from there. 
All right, so you have Jack Byrne and um, Curtis Fleming and Wes Houlihan and Troy Parrish and Kenny Cunningham. And we start off talking a little bit about a guy called Paddy Moore who played in the 30s and he played um, for both both Ireland's, if you like. Uh, and he's from um, Clonaf Avenue. Uh, but he, he died early because of complications with, with alcohol, but he once scored four goals in the World Cup qualifier against Belgium in 1934, which was a record and still is a record for an Irish international. Um, but the stadium is only in GA ownership from 1913. And uh, we talk about the history of the games coming to Ireland, effectively the IRFU and, and, and the IFA were established in 1879 and, and 1880. And they were very Belfast orientated. So when the GA came along, um, it probably had a wider spread, but it was all around that era of games being formalized, rules being laid down, written down. Uh, but from the off, the GA was very much uh, a focus for, for the IRB and, and for infiltration by the IRB. And, and Gary touches on that as we as we walk around, because the very next stop as we walk around is down to to, to Tom Clark's house where, where he lived in, on Richmond Road. So do you want to take us through that, Gary, a little bit, that history? Uh, well, um, the... The, the history of 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 which part of it? Sorry. So uh, as you move along towards the Tom Clark uh, house and the history of the IRB and GAA and how all that mixed together with soccer, uh, I think uh, this is the part that Aon does. Actually, <laughs> so he should do it. <laughs> uh, but uh, I'm, I'm like the spoofer in uh, in the in exam. Gary Cook, he's a spoofer. That's all he is. He doesn't know the history. This guy does. This is his part, so I'll let him say. He'll tell yeah. But that, that, that area that around Fairview Marino, if people are aware of it, like it was a hotbed of political activity in the, um, you know, 100 years ago. So the IRB, or sorry, the Irish Volunteers would have trained uh, at the rear of Fairview Church. The um, Irish Citizens Army would have drilled um, further down in Marino beside Cor- uh, Corden House. And it's interesting, like, <clears throat> there was a, an interface at a League of Ireland match in 1913 around the time of the lockout. And there was a baton charge famously on Collins Street in 1913 over uh, uh, an appearance by Larkin or a, a, a expected appearance by Larkin. Uh, over around that weekend when everything's getting hot and heavy, but it was it was Larkin who 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 demanded that um, the striking workers would would uh, uh, picket protest uh, a, a shells bows game because he said that there was a, a scab playing on both on both on both teams. So it's kind of interesting when when it comes to the sort of the the lockout struggle, the the main sporting fixture. Uh, that was at the heart of that uh, was, uh, was, a, was, a, was a soccer game. But when it came to the, the War of Independence, the main sporting six fixture, if you like, that was at the heart of that, uh, of that struggle was, was a GEA game. Um, but uh, you know, as Gary will say, when, when we're down at Tom Clark's house and, and we're speaking about all the people that he would have been involved with, you know, not every uh, GA person was, was a rabid Republican and not every soccer player had a different political identity. It, like... Mm-hmm. Um, Oscar, Oscar Trainer, yeah, uh, was a goalkeeper for Belfast Celtic, uh, and uh, uh, Carl Brewer actually played uh, cricket. Uh, and well, so what's interesting about Croke Park as well is you know soccer was played there, uh, but you know before the ban and all that uh, at the beginning, and cricket was played there even as well. Uh, and and my understanding of it is that uh, you know Michael Cusack himself is a cricket fan and had. You know, had they had to make a decision about whether cricket would be part of the GAA or not, you know, because there were so many clubs. So this is a kind of history that a lot of people aren't really aware of. And uh, I find it I, I find it uh, particularly fascinating. Uh, Eamon de Valera himself, of course, said, um, I think about rugby that in Black Rock, he went to Black Rock. Uh, it was a game that most suited the Irish uh, temperament as well. And uh, what, what I find interesting, I suppose, what you both do is, is the idea as well that you know, the, the, the Jesuit schools promoted, you know, rugby uh, and the Christian Brothers schools promoted uh, GAA and soccer is and always kind of was, uh, as I say, educationally harmless. Uh, <laughs> uh, is. Uh, and and that, that it's, it's, that, it's that kind of lesser, uh, lesser citizen sort of status that soccer mm-hmm. has that particularly interests me. And I know Eamon Dunphy himself, himself has talked about it a lot when he talks about it in, in uh, in his book, uh, and you know, uh, as he says, you know, we were we were spat at, you know, <laughs> and like it wasn't part of official Ireland soccer, mm. and um, it, uh, it it it's so it's 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 got that it's got that 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 sort of of the people sense of it, you know. 
uh, from the ground up kind of vibe, I think soccer, you know, where we, we, we've got to say soccer and delineate between soccer and football as well, because obviously they're, <laughs> they're the same thing, but they're two different things. Right? It's just, it's funny. But uh, anyway, so, so, so it's, so, so yeah. Uh, yeah. And then, and then we kind of, we moved down just uh, then from road down, down to Stella Maris and Stella Maris is a, a great underage club and has a, a little wall there and Stella Maris uh, football club and has all the list of ex-internationals who played for it and one of them obviously is John Giles and and, and we focus a bit on John because um, you know the fact that he felt not even Irish when he left because mm. uh, left Ireland because the Christian brothers were were pushing this this sort of official Ireland view of uh, of what it meant to be Irish and I we get the sense that and I get the sense maybe from my own um, you know family that a lot of these Christian brothers in the early years of the state were pro- probably from the country probably in Dublin, not really happy to be in Dublin, teaching kids who didn't understand, who played games that they didn't understand, you know, living in states that they didn't get their, couldn't get their head around because they're, you know, and everything being pushed by official Ireland was, you know, Peg and Tillanoch, this kind of idolised view of, of the Irish condition. And and these, these urban street kids just didn't fit it. And, you know, Giles talks about being a, a, called a, a corner boy, who, who goes up to Dalyman Park and, and going to Dalyman Park as a corner boy was was like the, the, the worst description that a teacher could give you. And so he heads off to to England in, as a as a teenager, as a 14, 15 year old, not even feeling Irish, mm. which is which is a remarkable dynamic, you know. So we touch on that and and um we bring a bit of fun into it because you know Owen Hand was a was a was involved with Stella Maris as well and um he uh he obviously took over from Giles as manager and um we uh, we tell the story about how Owen Hand apparently only became Ireland manager uh, winning a vote over Paddy Mulligan by one vote because an FBI official uh, was convinced that Paddy Mulligan had thrown a bun at him on a bus and that's how he won the mm. uh, the <laughs> that's how he won the job. But uh, we bun, bring all those bun, we, bun, those stories into it. Yeah bun, yeah a bun, bun the bun not a bung but um but Gary does his, does his John Giles bit because, you know, that's really why he's there. So I was involved in getting a plaque put up to him from where he's from in um, in Ormond Square. Uh, and it's remarkable the day that we unveiled it, the, the level of, of, of affection that he's held in. Mm. But he, he lives a life where he can't walk five yards when he, some people approach him and sort of, you know, almost genuflect in front of him, you know. Um, but yeah, uh, his story and what he says in his book about, about the way he was treated as a kid in school. And there's a lot of that through the tour about the school and how schools viewed um, viewed soccer. Because and, and still to, to an extent, not to a large extent, but to an extent, soccer just isn't the game that um, knits in with the Irish education system. Mm. Uh, other sc- schools will identify themselves, as Gary says, as rugby schools or as GA schools. But there's very few schools which would kind of face the world or, or, or show themselves to the world being identified as being soccer schools. And that's part, that's, that's one of the things that, that uh, I think the soccer community has to, has to address. And it came up in one of the tours. Yeah. Uh, Gary, Gary will remember. Yeah, Noel King was on the tour and uh, he was, uh, he'd worked for the FAI, I think. And mm. uh, he was very, I mean, you could really hear it in his voice. You know, he, he, he was pretty annoyed about the fact that he, he found it very difficult dealing with some of the GA with the, with the GA schools in relation to getting soccer into them and, and that there was, you know, he believed that, you know, you should be of a choice to play both in schools. And, and in many respects, he's right. Of course, you should be able to play anything in schools. And I don't like the politics of any sport in this country because I had far too much of it when I was growing up, you know, mm-hmm. soccer was for the lower class and you play rugby because you're middle class. And it really annoyed me hugely. So I can understand where he's coming from. Um, but uh, he was, he was, he was, he was, he was, Kind of venting his frustration almost <laughs> as if as if Aon himself was personally responsible. It's quite funny, but he was great. He was very interesting and great. And uh, uh, it, it's uh, and, we, and we get we get great people on the tours. Like we got Mickey Whelan on the tour. We got Turtle O'Connor, uh, Turtle O'Connor on the tour. Mickey Whelan told a great story about the vigilance committee that used to stand outside these you know games and Lansdowne Road and and Dataman Park, ticking off names of GA players that that might be attending these matches and all the rest. Of it. Um, really fascinating stuff. And Mickey Whelan has a has a you know, former Dublin manager and Dublin uh, player, but he has a, a soccer background as well. So he understood the dynamic, you know? Mm. So for some people of a certain generation, this is really real to their daily lives. I say for a lot of people, they just, they play both games and hope to be under the radar a little bit. But this intense rivalry between Christian brother schools comes out a lot, especially when we tell, tell the Liam Brady story. So we go we go from, from, um, from Stella Maris, we go down to Talca Park. Uh, and that is a, Talca Park is a, obviously 
it's a live discussion as to what the future talk of park is. But we talk about because Eamon comes from across the house facing Catawba Park. So we talk about beyond there is Clontorc Park and Clontorc Park is where the original um, All-Irelands were played in the 1890s and one guy called uh, Jack Kirwan actually won an All-Ireland with Dublin in 1896 and then went on to play for Spurs, won an, won an FA Cup with Spurs in 1901 and then went on to manage IX Amsterdam. And there's another guy living on, who used to live along Richmond Road called Alex Stevenson who's one of, the only, one of only five players from what's now the Republic of Ireland to play for Rangers. Um, uh, he played in the 40s. Uh, and then we talk about Con Martin and Con Martin, who won an all Ireland, sorry, a, a Leinster Championship with Dublin in 1941. Uh, and then discovered he played for John Condra that you play for. And they wouldn't give him his medal and didn't give right. him his medal until 1971. And in the meantime, he, he played for Ireland, the Republic of Ireland uh, against England in Goldson Park, scored a goal, but wasn't considered Irish enough to get his Leinster Championship medal. And then you know, we talk about the split up of the FU, of the IFA in 1921, which is 100 years ago, because Shells, who now play in uh, in Talker Park, were involved in the split because they were uh, due to play a game against Glenavon in a in a cup semi final in Belfast uh, around that time. Uh, the game was drawn. The Belfast orientated IFA um, uh, decided that the replay would again be played in Belfast, and Shelburne said, "Well, that's we're not playing that game." And it was just a, a, the latest of a number of grievances they had against the Belfast kind of orientated uh, IFA, and they formed the FAI with a number of other clubs. And the interesting thing is that from the early twenties to the late forties, players play for both. The FAI international side didn't have a lot of recognition. It wasn't. It didn't get internationals against England, Scotland, or Scotland or Wales, and the IFA still presented this team as being Ireland, and selected players from the entire island. So people like Jackie Carey, people like Paddy Moore, we mentioned earlier, um, represented both Ireland's. But thirty players represented both Ireland's uh, until the late forties. Ireland became a republic, and it kind of. UEFA intervened and FIFA intervened and that's where Northern Ireland and the Republic mm. of Ireland kind of settled but Shelburne were at the heart of the, of the split 100 years ago Very interesting I didn't actually know that I, I always wanted to look into the, the split but Ah uh, we know more than he does Gary uh, we're away in a hack well we always like people who know a little bit less We've beaten off the ball <laughs> Yes uh. <laughs> One nil for the amateurs Before we move on to uh, Daily Mount Park, which is the home of Irish football. Oh, we don't get we just we don't go anywhere near Daily Mount Park yeah. yet. No, no, no. We have yeah. to go down by 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 St. Luke's of Bertie, the goodbye, the Bishop's Palace for them, it's goodbye, Patrick O'Connell's house. Then we have to go by Crow Park. I mean, you're getting ahead of yourself there. But anyway, go can on. I, well, can I ask you a question <laughs> about Tolka Park and Drum Condra specifically? Yeah, yeah, you might yeah. you might know the unanswerable question. And if you don't, it's okay. Drum, so I play for Drum Condra AFC. Yes. And there is a Drum Condra FC. And both of them claim to be the original club oh, Lord. that played in Tolka Park. Mm. The one that we play for have the ticket for the Atletico Madrid game. Yes. The but, the other, but the other one have the original badge. So it's a, it's a, it's a major split at the minute in the drum concert. Oh, I don't know. I can't answer that question. <laughs> I know. <laughs> <laughs> I'd rather talk about the partition of the country than I'd rather than talk about the the, the soccer partition in Drumcondra. Like dr- drums were a big side in 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 the you know in the in the glory years of League of Ireland. Talker Park would have been heaving with games between them and Rovers, um, you know, in the 40s, 50s, 60s. They kind of went into 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 uh, decline really in the 70s. They they no longer really existed, and then Talker Park was was host to everybody. I can't. I know that there was an attempt to 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 rejuvenate the name and to have John Condra out there in, in Irish or Dublin soccer circles again and that's been successful um, but the, we do touch on the, the, the demise of the League of Ireland from the 60s to the 80s it really collapsed and it was probably television uh, probably the match, match of the day all these players that you heard of that you only ever saw playing you know if they're playing international games you never saw them playing in a way of seeing them play otherwise and then all of a sudden they're on your television and mm-hmm. so you didn't have to go down to Talca Park or, and, and, and people's kind of the way that they used to entertain themselves changed because, you know, there used to be so many picture houses around Dublin and they, you know, were no longer being used. And, you know, the the dance hall scene, uh, you know, that kind of faded away as well. So it wasn't just League of Ireland football. And you have to remember that the GEA may have maintained its its, uh, its, its big crowd phenomenon, but there's only a handful of games, a handful of championship games during the summer that would atta- attract those crowds. So uh, that's interesting. But there was a, a famous game, you know, the League, the League of Ireland beat um, the English League, which at that time had the same status as being an international in 1962. Uh, and a guy who saved the penalty 
uh, was the uh, League of Ireland goalkeeper called uh, Sheila Darcy. Uh, known, I don't know why he was known as Sheila, but he later became the uh, manager of the Ireland women's soccer team. So we did have a, a manager of the Irish women's soccer team called Sheila Darcy. But <laughs> Sheila was a bloke. I didn't know that. There you so, go. <laughs> a long way to go to the Dalemount Park. I know time's getting against us, but um, do you want to take us through the, the route from... Yeah, well, we go, like, we go around then. We go around to, to St. Luke's and we talk about Liam Brady and Liam Brady, like because Bertie Hearn obviously would have been somebody very, in political circles, very at ease with being a soccer fan, a GA fan, which had been impossible at the early years to say, as a state. So we talk about the fact that um, Douglas Hyde was president of Ireland, went to a soccer international in Stadium Park in 1938 and then was stripped of his patronage of the GEA. And then we talk about Liam Brady and Gary talks about, talks about Liam Brady. Uh, yeah, and he was, to him. well, he was, obviously he was very good at, uh, at, at, at football, both codes. Uh, and he was, I think he was selected to play for the Irish school boys in a match. And uh, he was also supposed to be playing uh, a GEA match for his school in St. Aidan's in uh, Whitehall. And, and he was told, you know, if he played in a soccer match that he would not really be welcome back at the school. Uh, so he played in the soccer match and he didn't go back to school. Obviously, he went to uh, to Arsenal and then to Italy, <laughs> where uh, where uh, he he told me the story actually, uh, Aon, about uh, what the Arsenal chairman at the time yeah. said to Brady. It's funny. Yeah, well, uh, there's a big controversy, by the way, when he when he was effectively expelled from St. Aidan's, but Bertie went to the same school. So that's that's kind of the hook there. But um, yeah, he, he was leaving Arsenal to go to Italy and the, the chairman said to him, well, you know, Liam, there's no guarantee you're going to be a success in a foreign league. And I think this kind of, uh, you know, um, got the Christian brother education within Liam Brady a, li- a, bit, <laughs> a bit riled up when he said, I'm already playing in a foreign league. <laughs> well, it would be that. more like was I'm already playing <laughs> Bill <laughs> so yeah so I think that whole the political interface between soccer and uh, and GA and what was kind of acceptable and what wasn't acceptable you know Bertie Hearn did change that he was quite comfortable being a man being seen as being a Manchester United fan being a Dubs fan uh, which would have been impossible the early years of the stage so from there we go on to um to my favorite story, which is about the uh, uh, the Archbishop uh, John Charles McRae when he tried to to stop a, a soccer international, having just overthrown a government in 1951, he then decided to take on the FAI, which you think would be easier. But Gary Gary tells that story as well. Well, they, they um, I think the first match was supposed to be in 1952 is against um, against Yugoslavia, uh, mm. and the the uh, there was such a, uh, an uproar about it, and uh, McQuaid managed to get the game, um, you know, banned, uh, cancelled. I think of the day, the cancelling of the day, and in 1955, then they reared its head again, and the the invitation was was uh, extended again to the Yugoslavian FA. They, and again, there was a huge to do about it, a huge uproar about it. And my understanding of it is is that is that uh, there was quite a few people even with an RTE who wouldn't work on the game uh, because they were pretty much told by their local priest or the bishop, whatever, you know, that this was a mortal sin. And um, uh, and Philip Green, I think, or or legend has it, I'm not, I don't know whether this is true or not, but there was some suggestion that he didn't work on the game because of, because of the uh, of the issue. But anyway, the game did actually go ahead. I think Patrick Kavanagh, the poet, amongst others, uh, led a, a kind of an arts uh, delegation that they, they, they protested and demonstrated and so on and encouraged people to go to the game. Uh, and the game did go ahead. Uh, I think uh, 22,000 people allegedly showed up, most of them over a wall, as far as I'm aware. And, uh, <laughs> a guy came on the tour. Yeah, yeah. A guy came on the tour. So we're all giving these statistics about... Um, you know, about attendances and stuff. And the guy who was there on the tour who'd been to all these matches back in the day and said, you have a cabbage just jumped over the wall. So you and your 22,000 <laughs> is relevant because, but I think it was the first indication that there was going to be a little bit of resistance to the power of the Catholic Church was this soccer <clears> game. And, you know, Yugoslavia were deemed as being communist and all the rest of them pagan. And, uh, 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 but if you think about 1955, this game was played in October, September 55, you have the All-Ireland Final in Crow Park, named after an archbishop, the archbishop of Cashel throws in the ball, church and stage, official Ireland, totally, uh, you know, comfortable with the GEA spectacle. And meanwhile, the archbishop of Dublin is trying to stop a soccer international. So it just kind of gives an indication of who were at the top table and who weren't. Mm-hmm. Um, but, then we go around the corner. Yeah, then we go around the corner. 
Uh, and we go down to Patrick O'Connell's house, who's an, a fascinating guy who was a local guy who played for Manchester United in the, from 1911 to 1919 and then became manager of Barcelona. Um, and his story is fascinating, absolutely fascinating. Um, we can go into it a little bit, but there's actually a connection between uh, his, that house where he was from, his time playing for Manchester United during World War I, um, the saving of uh, the finances of Barcelona and the killing of Leon Trotsky. I think you have to go on the tour and if you're going to probably get the explanation of what happened there. I have to pay for it. Yeah. Uh, well, it's, it's, it's a free it's tour. It's a free tour. Oh, is it? Is it? <laughs> <laughs> there is no cost. Um, but there, yeah. he. Went uh, nothing on, comes for free. Nothing comes yeah, for he free. Went on he went on a tour. Of, you have to pay with North, your time. Yeah, he went on a tour of North America in order to play, <laughs> pay with your time uh, and your sweat and your tears. And, uh, and the We're doing a here. sporting tour as yeah. a guy from off the ball is saying, you pay with your time. <laughs> <laughs> it's, it's like, it's like that, that scene in fame. <laughs> you want fame, fame costs. Um, yeah, it's, you see, off the ball is like, it's, it's like, it's like going to the high altar of off the ball. Yeah, it is. You know? It's sort it of is. like, do they approve? If they yeah. don't approve, we're dead. We're yeah, gone. This is it. We're going to be slated after. We'll be cancelled. Yeah. See, see, this is this is just one football podcast on on off the ball. It's Team Thirty Three. So we're right. we're sort of the we're the hipster side of uh, off the ball. If you and so Team Thirty Two and Team Thirty One and all that. Is uh, no, and it comes. The name comes from the famous Delaney uh, Euro or was it the the World Cup? Um, the oh, France of course, right? Okay. okay. So that's where the name comes from. So, <laughs> I so, suppose. If people want to go on this free walking tour, but we haven't even will... told you about, we haven't even told you about. We'll, we'll give you one more before we go. Before like Daily Mount, you know, there's a million stories. But the last story mm-hmm. we'll tell you is we go up to where a guy called Tom uh, Farkinson used to live. Tom Farkinson was um was a goalkeeper who was an IRA activist and was uh, exiled to Wales because of his activity in the in the early twenties. And uh, he became a goalkeeper for Cardiff City, won an FA Cup in 1927 with Cardiff City. And he's the reason why goalkeepers stay on their line for penalties. Because when on the way to winning the FA Cup in 1927, Tom Farkerson had a little kind of a, a way of rushing the kicker of the penalty every time the penalty was conceded um, as soon as the whistle was blown. And he was so successful at this that they uh, they changed the rule because of him. And he had a gun in his kit bag for all his career in case his IRA background came back to haunt him. And he was selected to play for the IFA team in 1931 and told them that they weren't the, the legitimate Ireland. So like we, we picked up a lot of these stories along the way and we go from there to, to, to Daily Mountain. There's so many stories with Daily Mountain, Liam Whelan and the Buzzy mm-hmm. Babes and, and that famous game in 57 against England and, and all the more recent stuff about the, the, the crowd issues and the game against Italy in 85 and why Daily Mount is no longer really an international venue and what's going to happen into the future. But like there's so many people who just tell their own little stories of, uh, of the games they went to and we really enjoy it. And, uh, and Gary does his, his aim and Dunphy and, um, and various different other impressions. Ah, you know, <laughs> you know, all in the best possible taste. Yeah, course. yeah. So we'll finish off with Daily Mount Park, Isaiah, and I know you have to get uh, get going to do your actual job. What about do what, what's what do you how do you summarize Daily Mount Park? Because there's so much that has happened in it. Oh, I know, Gary. It's, it's almost like a, it's 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 there's such a lot of level of positivity about Daily Mount Park at the moment. What bows are doing uh, and and all that, but there's such history to it and just how it kind of it was the main international venue until the 70s and then the the you know the the competitive games kind of drifted away there's a great story of, of this 57 game against England when Ireland were 1-0 up and Philip Green who we mentioned earlier he can still get on YouTube he can't be heard over the roar of the crowd and then a last minute equaliser goes in by a guy called Johnny Attio and the story is that you could hear the silence from O'Connell Street just this 45,000 roaring crowd 1-0 up against England and then uh, and Liam Whelan played in that game, one of only four internationals he did play for Ireland, and he was he was dead only a few years later. So th- there's all that kind of local history of local people who played in that stadium, uh, the great names like Pele and and Zinedine Zidane and, and and all the great occasions. And then it kind of it it has a it has a future now because of the the redevelopment and, uh, and all that. So it's it's not a graveyard in any way, mm. but you know many of our. Our stories and our and our memories and our childhoods would, would would be connected with that with that ground, you know. And uh, and Gary tells a story about being at the at, at the, the the Russia game in in seventy four. Yes, indeed. Um, there were I think there were more people standing on top of the stand than there were 
in the terrace. Uh, it was one of those free-for-all uh, games. One of Ireland's great performances, you know, uh, and a hat-trick for Don Gibbons. Apparently, Don Gibbons uh, had to get a, uh, get home to London very quickly after the game. And he went out in his kind of mucky uh, gear and tracksuit and so on with the match ball and got, uh, hailed a taxi. And uh, taxi driver said, why are we at the game? <laughs> the taxi driver was Brian Kerr. Huh? Yeah. Uh, yeah, again, is that really true? But sure, look, does it matter? Does the truth matter? Mm. Um, <laughs> but I mean, it, we, we also touched on how the ban went from the GEA. Um, but like the ban is still in many people's heads. It's in many people's hearts. It's in many people's outlook on, on how sport is. It's it's a, it probably a generational thing. But like you still have people like pal of um, of Gary's who'll say that GEA is only, you know, no rules and 15 goalkeepers. And then you have people within the GEA that I would know haven't been at matches, the things that people say, you know, uh, if you want to boo, follow soccer. You hear, you know, and this idea that soccer is, you know, kind of English, it's professional, and the players have English accents when they're playing for Ireland, you know, it's partitions as well, that's the, the cybers, the GEA is a little bit more, you know, purist and uh, an amateur and uh, and all that. So, but I think for most people, maybe younger than me, it, these are two games that, are, that you can love uh, equally. Uh, they're interchangeable. You can play them both. Um, but from a Dublin perspective, there is that class element that if you played soccer, you were a corner boy heading up to Damon Park. And um, that's, we, 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 we try to just investigate that. And it's, it's just really, really interesting. Mm. Yeah, well, in, in the countryside, it's still kind of there. Having grown up in Donegal, it's, you, you, yeah. choose, you choose if you're playing tour, football actually. or yeah, there was, soccer. There was a lad, sorry to cut across you there, but there was a lad on the tour, I, think was in, I can't remember, is it Tipperary or Offaly or somewhere, but he was saying where he was in school, he was told not the playing soccer was a bad idea because it would affect his ability to play hurling, uh, which I don't really believe. No, I'd say DJ Carey would be very good at anything he played. I know? think Shane Long would have a have a view on that. <laughs> yeah. Shane Long played minor for Tipperary and uh, went on to have a good. Niall Quinn. Niall Quinn, who has a a, a minor on Ireland, uh, he played in the minor Ireland final in '83, and then a few years later was scoring goals for Arsenal. So, yeah, it, it, there's a lot of Ireland is a small country, but identity is very important to us, and and football and sporting identity is. Uh, and and we still we still feel it. We still know it's like if somebody plays a particular game, we pigeonhole that person in our heads as to who they are and where they're from and what their background is and what school they went to. Uh, and we're not trying to make a judgment call over which game is better or or which you know. There's a, <laughs> there's been a lot of things done over the years that have been um, have been good on both sides and maybe negative on both sides. But it's it's part of the the, the history of the state. And we don't have there isn't a football walking tour. Uh, in Dublin and we just don't want to go well this match happened here and this guy came from here and this person came from there it's more about sort of this is the country in which we live and and this is the tension that has been around and these are you know these are the stories that go with it yeah. uh, and we can only understand where we are now uh, in the development of sport in Ireland um, uh, if we're going to have to try and improve things into the future you know mm-hmm. Well, it sounds absolutely brilliant, and I, I promise I will get down and, and pay with my time and, and go on this. Uh, well, we have to go footballwalking tour at gmail.com. Footballwalking tour at gmail.com. And just because they're free things. doesn't mean you have, you know, you have a get out clause not to turn up. All right. <laughs> just saying that there's a long waiting list of people who are doing things right and want to turn up. And if you don't turn up and don't tell us, I don't know. And by the way, everybody's welcome. It doesn't matter if you're a convicted terrorist or, you know, a serial killer or even a Shamrock Rovers fan. Like we're very non, non-judgmental. Well, footballwalkingtour at gmail.com is where you can book tickets or book your time to be yep. on the football walking tour with Gary Cook and Labour TD Aon Raider. And thanks very much for joining me today, lads. Team 33. This is OTB Sports Radio. So that's us done on Team 33 for another week. Thanks to you as ever for listening. If you want to listen back to any of that or any of the Team 33s or any of the off the ball stuff that I mentioned in the show, you can get it in the OTB Sports app. That's the best place to get it. The OTB Sports app, which you can get in any app store and it's well worthwhile downloading and get everything from off the ball in Team 33 in one place. is very handy to download stuff and subscribe to the podcast as well and if you want to get on the football walking tour we joked about it but it is free and it is well worth doing if you want to get on the tour with Aon and with Gary as well it is football walking tour 
at gmail.com that you email to get on the tour and to find out more information as well. So it is well worth doing. I would highly recommend people doing it. And I hope you enjoyed the chat with Aon and with Gary as well. We'll be back again, same time, same place. But until then, Ewa, August, take away, Aon. Bye.